Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me this morning is a man who needs no introduction, but I feel like he quite likes my cheeky little introductions of him. It is the <laughs> wonderful Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Morning, Jav. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. I'm good, thank you. So, Alex, first up, we have yet more by-elections coming this week. So there's two happening, aren't there, on Thursday. How are they shaping up? I mean, badly for the Tories is the short answer to that. In Wellingborough, the MRP projections that I have seen imply a significant Labour victory, as does national polling. I have seen also some internal party polls, cannot say which party, which suggest the same. Now, let me put this in, in some context. In 2015, Labour came third in Wellingborough, behind the Conservatives and UKIP. So... This is, first of all, a big reversal, but also in some ways it is a test for reform because this is the sort of seat and the sort of circumstances, you know, very right-wing, very Brexity, very disappointed with its Tory MP. It should be the sort of place where reform make a massive impact. In 2015, UKIP was almost at 20%, and reform is throwing everything at this seat, with a very high-profile candidate, Ben Habib, and no expense spared, a big sort of campaign office right in the center of of the city, and uh, loads of literature going through letterboxes. So, So if reform fails to make a serious dent, I think, that could be quite a big failure. There is, of course, a scenario where reform don't do better than UKIP used to do in that area, but the Tories do so badly they come third, which would allow reform to present it as a, a big victory and a move forward and would be an absolute disaster for the Tories, would would just intensify the panic currently going on in the backbenches. Now, Kingswood in South Gloucestershire is... Actually, more interesting in many ways. The the vacancy was created when Conservative MP Chris Skidmore resigned over Sunak's sort of U-turn on green policies and plans for a new law that gave uh, fresh drilling licenses in the North Sea for oil and gas. Labour is also a strong favourite in this seat. It is another... 11,000 vote, 23-point safe Tory seat. There's even less polling from here. But again, from what we have, it looks like it will turn into a a 10-point Labour lead, which is another massive reversal. Some Tories who came out over the weekend were reporting that they said it feels like they've they've given up when it comes to campaigning for these seats. But is it all that clear cut. It seems to me that Sunak is desperately throwing everything he can at his own political survival. Mm. Is it just that they've given up when it comes to the by-elections and he's thinking further forward? Is it that straightforward? I mean, that is the the sense is that everything is being focused on the general election and, and these by-election defeats have been priced in in many ways. I think that's a strategic mistake, in my view. I think the level of defeat matters. I think not bothering to fight them matters. 
because it will demoralize both his backbench MPs and people on the ground, you know, Tory activists working to try and win these elections. Toby Helm has been reporting from Wellingborough for The Observer for a few weeks now, and you know, that that photo of the, the car outside Peter Bone's locked-up surgery with no tyres and abandoned there for so long with red notices from the council on it and grass growing on the bonnet, <laughs> literally right outside his office. I mean, it really does look like a, a horrible visual representation of the, the decay in the Tory party, in the decay in the constituencies ran by the Tory party. There are people saying that basically the usual requests one would expect to go and campaign in those constituencies, you know, often the party will send letters to MPs saying you are required to go down there and campaign, let's say, twice or three times during the the pre-election period, and there's been none of this. And you can sort of understand that with Wellingborough because of, you know, Peter Bone's circumstances of resigning and the fact that then, you know, the local party selected his girlfriend to run. (laughs) And you get a lot of Tory MPs saying basically they're afraid if they go down to Wellingborough, they're going to be laughed at and abused in the street. But actually, in activity and fatalism in Kingswood, I find that really quite baffling, especially given the reason Skidmore resigned over the North Sea licenses policy. One would have thought it would be a good testing ground for Sunak's sort of anti-green pivot. The Kingswood thing is really quite baffling why they decided they're not even going to bother fighting that one. Yeah, strange is is they they're giving up on these already because they're cashed in to focus on the general election. But then by giving up on these, they're squandering an opportunity to perhaps put themselves in a better position come the general election by, as you say, using it as a a sort of test case for whatever arguments they might want to use down the line. Yeah, and momentum. You know, momentum really matters. Mm. Um, if they get to really bad losses, then they go into the local elections. Again, bad losses expected because, remember, while the local elections two years ago were from a not hugely advantageous place for Labour because they were defending loads more seats, Mm. these local elections, they come from, you know, really around the same time that Johnson got in power. And the Conservatives really did all right in these. And so they they have potentially more to lose in these local by-elections and are predicted to lose it. So they could go into a general election with really a sense of disastrous momentum against them. And that's why I'm saying I think it's a strategic error to not really push against that, to at least make a good show of it, you know, make a good fist of it. It's baffling. When it comes to Sunak's position, I suppose, at the moment as well, I didn't really think it could get too much worse than last week happened. And obviously, (laughs) (laughs) things somehow got worse. But uh, with these by-elections, can they drag him down all that much further? Or is there some, are they cashed in? Or as you say, is it just 
is is there a bottom to this is he strategically thinking he's hit bottom and then slowly realizing no no i haven't can things get worse with the amount of criticism he's getting as well from all sides at the moment i mean things can always get worse that is the lesson of the last decade for everyone i think the latest rumor jav are you seated um yes is that david cameron might come back as a unity caretaker prime minister. This oh. is actually being discussed in the Tory party and reported, I think, in The Independent it was. I mean, I think what bodes really badly for Sunak is what happened last week, not with a whole snafu in Parliament, but with Kemi Badenoch's actions in the afternoon that followed which I think are are fascinating. So apparently on Wednesday afternoon, there was a really lively conversation in Downing Street as to whether Sunak should apologize and just nip this in the bud. And the team were leaning towards him coming out and making a full apology to just stop the news on this. Kemi Badenoch's lot found out that this was what was going on and she put out that tweet, mm. um, basically doubling down on his comments, effectively cutting off his retreat, limiting his options, making an apology now impossible because it would mean a split with his own cabinet as well as uh, sort of, uh, you know, going back on his on his comments. And I think that bodes really, really badly for him because it means that Badenoch is on manoeuvres, although she's smart enough not to actually lead any rebellion. Michael Gove at the weekend defended Sunak very full-throatedly, saying, I'm quoting here, he's one of the most gifted leaders in the Western world. Um, He has a razor-sharp intellect, great integrity, and a determination to do what is right. And Michael Gove, full-throatedly defending you, I think is one of the ho- four horsemen of the Tory <laughs> leadership apocalypse. It usually, it usually precedes basically a leadership challenge by about a month. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if Michael Gove is famously loyal, so I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> on, yeah, on a on a separate note, now then. Uh, Related to the by-election, so so further down in the month there is the Rochdale by-election isn't there. Mm, what yeah. has been going on and what is going on with Labour's candidate? On the 29th, a leap year by-election mm. that appears cursed for all intents and purposes. Sure. I mean, so this is the by-election that was created by the recent death of previous incumbent, Labour incumbent, Sir Tony Lloyd, loved by many. It is not considered a marginal. I mean, it's not uber safe in the sort of percentages we're talking about, like Wellingborough, but it's not really marginal. Although last time, interestingly, in 2019, the Conservatives made significant advances with a female Muslim candidate who was not reselected to the surprise of many in the party. They've gone in a different direction now, and I do wonder why. The Green Party candidate... Guy Otten, I think he's called, had to withdraw after some, you know, m- social media posts 
resurfaced. George Galloway is marauding the area under the auspices of the Workers' Party. So, you know, this was already quite a fractious one. And then on top, you had the revelations by the Mail on Sunday that Azar Ali, the Labour candidate, had made some truly awful sort of conspiracist comments about the 7th of October attack in Israel. I mean, what is interesting is that according to the Mail on Sunday, the comments were made shortly after the attack, but they've only come out now, two weeks before the by-election, and there really is very little the Labour Party can do. I mean, his name will appear with Labour next to it, whether anyone likes it or not. So Labour is quite snookered, and I do wonder whether that was the point all along. It would be interesting to know who provided the mail with this recording and when, because someone has sat on it for several months. So the only thing Labour can do is what they are doing. You know, Ali has completely withdrawn his comment. He has apologized, and quite rightly so. He's meeting with local Jewish leaders to try and smooth things over. I think it's too soon to know how that might affect the election in that in that area. I haven't seen any polling. Literally, all this stuff just surfaced. I don't know what more Starmer could do at this stage. I mean, he could, I guess, withdraw the whip sort of proactively, even if he gets elected. I mean, it, yeah. it just would be a huge mess. And I think the hope at the moment is that by him having provided such a full and vociferous apology and retraction, he can now make some moves to show that this was a blip rather than a pattern. But we'll see. Finally, on domestic stuff. So Labour as well, they're going to be bomb-proofing their policy offering, it's been reported, we've been told. Does that mean just just ditching more stuff then, or what? And in terms of the, the bomb-proof side, given the unpredictability of the Tories, can anything be bomb-proofed? So therefore, might as well they be pitching hopeful things, which they might have to roll back. But, you know, people probably will understand that they can't guarantee because they don't know what they're going to come into. I mean, effectively, they can pitch whatever they like, provided there's no massive figure attached to it, because then the conversation will be, how much will this cost and how are you funding it? And they can effectively evade that, right? They can give generic answers. You know, they've got, they've got some areas where they say they will make some modest gains, removing the VAT exemption from private schools, abolishing the non-DOM status, all of that will be repeated a lot. There will be a big push to say that there will be efficiency gains, that they will run things better than the Conservatives, which, to be honest, I think is underpriced. Uh, you know, the, the fact that we have crumbling public services during a time when we have a really quite high burden for this country, I have to say, we are really low to mid-table by international comparison standards in terms of tax. And maybe there is something to that. Um, maybe there is something to the aphorism that the UK expects Scandinavian levels of public services with American levels of taxation. So I don't know that there is much left there 
that is not bomb-proof now, they will, you know, the the manifesto will be vibes-based. It will basically promise very little and hope to over-deliver. I see a very little remaining target. The Labour Party seems to have made itself as small as possible at the moment, to the chagrin of many, and I'm quite sympathetic to that position, because I think there is a balance to be struck between the ambition you offer to an electorate and the mandate you then have after an election, right? If Labour says nothing much before the election and then does massively revolutionary things after it, the question will be quite legitimately, where is your mandate? So there is a balance to be struck between being cautious and being unambitious. But, you know, I mean, this week there's a tranche of economic data coming out. It looks like it will be a confirmation of a recession. It looks like there's a chance that inflation will go slightly up again for the second month in a row. So that's the background, right? And Labour will be correct to bang that particular drum to say the reason we are having to keep our plans constantly under review is that they have screwed the country into the ground and are continuing to screw it deeper into the ground with each passing month. Can we have an election, please? Which is not the, you know, the worst message possible to go into a general election. Moving on to world news now. So concerns have been raised over Israel's offensive on Rafa. There have been strikes reported overnight. Is Netanyahu likely to just keep pushing ahead, Alex? It is horrible. And unfortunately, I remember us talking about this months ago in November when it looked like this was precisely what was going to happen, that, you know, the the Israeli forces would push from north into south further and further and further until, you know, that 2.7 million people were squished into as smaller an area as possible. And how do you avoid huge collateral damage in that kind of situation? There were strikes last night, extensive strikes in Rafa. There are differing reports of fatalities, but there's somewhere between 50 and 100, I think, looking at both um, side sources. Netanyahu has suggested that, you know, people should basically leave the area, but the only possible exit now open from that area is into Egypt. And Egypt has said unequivocally and quite, quite firmly from the beginning of this, that it will not open its border to Palestinians because it's it's afraid of instability, you know, internally, domestically of its own, and also because the country is suffering economically and cannot support a huge wave of, of refugees. So I genuinely don't know what the plan is here other than to wipe out the, you know, large swathes of the Palestinian population, which is a war crime. I mean, my sense from hearing Netanyahu speak in the last few days 
is that he knows the moment this ends, he's out. And so in a horrifying way, his position is now locked into prolonging this war. And this can't be allowed to continue. I, I think the moment must be approaching where the international community steps in mm. and tells his sort of wartime unity cabinet that it's time to ditch him. But when that moment comes, I don't know. Uh, he, there were two hostages rescued uh, last night, according to reports, which changes the appearance of this a tiny bit. You know, it, it m- makes it maybe a tiny smidgen more justified and for PR purposes I guess Israel can claim that well if they weren't still holding our people we wouldn't be doing this but how how can the international community expect us to stop pushing forward when we know they're still holding hostages but I mean it's a it's an impossible and really horrible situation there must be there must be now a political diplomatic, solution to this you know it's enough turning to a another ongoing conflict so vladimir putin had his interview with tucker carlson which emerged towards the end of last week which was let's say say interesting if, if god yeah, have you if, seen all of it yeah unfortunately i oh, uh god i've only have seen this. highlights i can't i can't force myself to watch all of it the highlights are bad the lowlights i should say are bad enough it's yes yeah, it's, it's very strange and sort of the i mean the the dominance from vladimir putin throughout is just is just bizarre as well oh yeah like he's, I, oh he's, yeah absolutely he's so fundamentally in control of all of it with a uh, very limited pushback it's uh Yes, it's it's quite limited pushback. I I haven't yeah. seen any pushback. No, there's well, Tucker Carlson tries to get the odd sort of question in, and it's just swiftly, it's it's completely sort of it's it's childlike, yeah. really, in terms of how uh, subservient he appears for it. But yeah, with with the interview itself, I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson, I wouldn't say did a did a good job. Of uh, of handling Vladimir Putin, but can we can we learn very much from what was said? And did it indicate particularly what Putin might be doing next? What actions he is he's considering when it comes to the conflict with Ukraine? I don't think so. I genuinely, I don't think so. It was such a miserable occasion. I I feel I know more about what Putin thinks happens to souls after we die than what's going to happen in in Ukraine. I mean, that moment at the end was just, just, where they just sat there in silence and looked at each other before Putin suggested, "Shall shall we leave it there? It was just bizarre. I guess the one thing we found out is that Putin does seem to think there's some room for negotiation for releasing the American journalist that is being held in in Russia because he hinted that there is someone that he would quite like to do a swap on. Experts seem to think that's Vadim Krasikov, the, the assassin Russian intelligence agent that killed a Chechen separatist in Berlin in 2019. I mean, other than that, really, there was very, very little 
meat on the bones, I think. Let's end on our kind of horrible people wrap up at the end of the show. But what did you make of Trump and his comments on NATO and Russia that he made as well? Awful, worrying, and interestingly, I think a massive strategic error by Trump. His campaign is really going all right now on the basis of, you know, his personality and the lie that he the last election was stolen and you know the the idea that he's being politically persecuted and that's why you have all the legal cases and culture war stuff basically that seems to be working for him and i see very little reason for him to change that approach and by making those comments on nato he did change that approach significantly. So I think it was a probably unplanned, off-the-cuff thing, as it usually is with him, but a, a massive blunder, because I think it raises the stakes of what another Trump presidency would mean for the country. And I have said this many times, I will say it once more. The Democrats' biggest electoral weapon is Trump. The more he blathers, the more he raises the risks of instability after the election, the more the Democrats can motivate their base to go out and vote, because American elections are all about turnout. You know, the the percentage of people who genuinely waver in terms of voting is quite small. The thing that makes the most difference is your base being motivated to go out and vote. And a comment like that on NATO, I can only see it demotivating some of Trump's voters, the ones that are, you know, somewhere in the center right and not entirely insane. And I can only see it really motivating a lot of Biden voters. So, I mean, an idiotic thing to say from every conceivable point of view, both in terms of content, but also in terms of strategy. Idiotic from every conceivable point of view is probably quite a good tagline for the Trump 2024 campaign, if he wants to go really honest. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, thank you as always for joining me this morning. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can support us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast or follow the link on the show notes. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early, as well as a shout-out on this show. Here's Alex with today's. Our Monday morning thanks on this sunny but chilly morning go to Penny Yules Bergeron, Carl Fjellstrom, Richard Milner, Kathy Pritchard and Daniel Roberts. Thank you for joining us for Start Your Week. Come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? 
That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andrei. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>